Matthew chapter 26, as we approach Easter, we are looking just at the uh, last hours of Jesus' life. We have about five more weeks until uh, Resurrection Sunday, and, uh, and today, uh, today we're going to be dealing with what's, what's known as the Last Supper. Jesus, at this point in Matthew chapter 26, has less than uh, 20, uh, 24 hours to live, and there will be no more sleep for Jesus until he is, he is in the grave from this point. And, uh, and here's how it begins. We're picking it up in verse 17. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so we've been talking about the Passover festival. It's Passover time. Jerusalem has 180,000 people packed in it around the city. This is the most important time in the Jewish calendar. And so... We actually see two festivals here, the Festival of Unleavened Bread and the Festival of Passover. Originally, uh, I mean, both of these ha have to do with the exodus of Egypt. Uh, back in the book of Exodus, it says this. This is the day to remember forever. The day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today, the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. And so the Festival of Passover and Unleavened Bread all had to do with remembering that their freedom from slavery and their freedom from uh, the, the, the destroying angel that passed through the village and, and only those who had the blood of the lamb on the door uh, were actually allowed to live, the firstborn. And, and that's why it's called the festival of Passover because if you had the blood over the door, the, the, the angel, the destroying angel passed over your house. And then the festival of, of unleavened bread had to do with the exodus because uh, it was going to be such a traumatic change and so quick from being slaves to being set free. God said, don't make your bread with leaven because they wouldn't have time to make it rise. It had to do with the expectation of freedom and the immediacy of God's deliverance. And so they had a festival for seven days where they couldn't have any yeast or leaven in their house. And so by Jesus' time, the idea of the Passover and unleavened bread were kind of lumped together. You started with the Passover meal, and then it went into the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And during that festival, you would take your little kids in your house with a little candle, and you'd search all the nooks and crannies to make sure you didn't have any leaven or any, any uh, yeast in your house. And it kind of got a little silly, because what a lot of them would end up doing, because you needed your leaven to make your bread rise. To get it out of your house, they would actually sell it to their Gentile neighbors for the week, and then after they'd buy it back so they could make their leavened bread again. So it had to do with this, this festival, but at the heart of this festival was the idea of the Passover lamb, because it was the blood of the lamb over the, the doorways that allowed the, the firstborn to live before they were set free from, from uh, Egypt. And so they would select an unblemished lamb, that uh, the most perfect lamb they could find for the Passover meal. They would bring it into the temple, and it would be slaughtered. The blood would be put on the altar, and then the fat would be burned. And then they would take the meat home, and that's what they would eat for their Passover meal. And, and the lamb was the centerpiece of the Passover dinner. They also uh, and, and had to eat the lamb within the city limits. And this is why uh, the disciples asked this question, because you might be, well, this is kind of a silly question, you know, where do you want us to eat dinner? They asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Because they had been staying, if you remember, in Bethany, about three clicks over the hill, over Mount of Olives. And uh, so you were to eat the Passover meal within the gates of the city. And so they, they were wondering, where are we going to eat this? And of course, Jesus makes some arrangements 
for them. Now, also at the heart of the meal was wine. They actually drank a lot of wine during Passover. And uh, partly because wine, often in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the idea of new wine had to do with rejoicing and God's blessing. Uh, for instance, Deuteronomy 33 says, Israel will live in safety. Jacob will dwell securely in a land of grain and new wine, for the heavens drop dew. Or uh, Amos 9, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. So it was a picture of freedom and celebration and God's blessing, and they were very serious about their wine during their Passover meal. They had to drink four cups of ritual wine, special wine that was prepared for the Passover. In fact, the rabbis taught that if you were too poor to have wine, that you had to sell your house to make sure you were able to have four glasses of ritual wine for your dinner. And then, of course, in between the ritual wine, you could have non-ritual wine. So there's a lot of wine. But anyways, it was a very festive occasion in uh, Passover, and this is what Jesus and his disciples are going to participate in. Though it seems, uh, there's a bit of argument about this, that they celebrated the Passover dinner the night before everyone else in the city did, because by the time everyone else was eating the Passover, Jesus was, was in the grave. And so the Passover actually is a picture of our own redemption and our own freedom and what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ, he's our Passover lamb and that he has been, been sacrificed. You remember John the Baptist said this, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Revelation, Jesus is called the, the lamb. And it's not just some, you know, weird title, you know, call someone, hey, lamb. I mean, it has a lot of imagery, a lot of power in the fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And, and it's no, uh, you know, just luck. It, it, it's um, the idea of Jesus dying on the Passover. There's a, there's a lot of connection. When Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, it was the exact same day that the Jews would be out there selecting their unblemished lamb. On the 10th of Nisan was the day. And they were out trying to find that perfect lamb they were going to have for the Passover meal. The same day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, presenting himself as the unblemished lamb, the lamb who would die for our sin. And uh, when it came to their dinner, Jesus and his disciples, again, they probably had their dinner a, a night before. They didn't have a Passover lamb at the table, most likely, because you weren't allowed to sacrifice in the temple until the following day. But Jesus at the meal, he was the lamb. Uh, he was the centerpiece uh, uh, of that meal. And then as Jesus hangs on the cross, it was the same time that people were in the temple slaughtering their lambs. And Jesus himself is shedding his blood for our sin and our freedom and, and our redemption, just as all these lambs in the temple were being slaughtered. And there'd be thousands upon thousands of lambs slaughtered uh, during the Passover festival. And so there's a lot of uh, connection and then the deadline for slaughtering a lamb on the Passover was 3 o'clock. That's the exact time that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. In fact, uh, Mark says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So just as the last lamb was being slaughtered in the temple, Jesus, uh, the, the lamb of God dies for us, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That is... Because of the death of Jesus, we now have this amazing access to God. The temple, which kept people out of the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was, is now open to all of us. 
that in Jesus, the Bible says that we can boldly go into the throne of grace and ask for mercy and grace in our time of need. And, and whenever you have need in Jesus, you just you can just come into God's presence and just and, and feed off of him. And also the wine has uh, pictures of Jesus in it. The reason they had four glasses of wine was because of the four redemptive sayings in the book of Exodus where God said this, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with his mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And this is, this is all what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus has taken us uh, out from under the yoke. I mean, the yoke is those things they would hook on an on a oxen to plow the field. And, and maybe you feel that you're just under the yoke of life. But Jesus said, come to me, everyone who is carrying heavy burdens and, and weighed down. He says, I will give you rest. And he goes on to say that you can take his yoke upon yourself. And his yoke is easy and light. And then he talks about being freed from being slaves. And, and just as the Egyptians were freed from the slavery of the Egyptians, we are set free. In Jesus, from the slaves being slaves to fear or slaves to anxiety or slaves to the pressures of this world because we're no longer children of this world, but we're, we're children of God, that we have been, been set free from slavery. And then redemption, that we have been redeemed from sin through Jesus. And then the idea of God taking us as his own, that we are now his kids. And he welcomes us as a son and daughter and God says, I love you, and I'm going to hold you close, and I'm going to never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to take you as our, our, our own. So this whole Passover time is this amazing picture of our redemption and our freedom and what we have in Jesus. And so let's jump in. So the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Again, because they would do it within the city. And he replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, and it's not that they didn't know, but it's not worthy of uh, mentioning. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the, at the table with his 12. Now, we've talked about it, this a few times, but they didn't eat like at tables like we do. This is the famous Leonardo da Vinci painting, right, with their kind of modern table with modern chairs. They didn't eat like that. It says they were reclining at the table because their tables were about a foot to 18 inches off the ground. And they actually kind of, they were kind of lying down eating their meals. And so the 12 or the 13 with Jesus are, are having their... Passover meal, this uh, really important meal. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And, and this is, uh, would be very hard for Jesus because just the idea of a meal in that culture meant closeness. Uh, it meant fellowship. It meant that you, you loved these people and they were close to you, that they were family. That's what having a meal with someone meant. And here Jesus is having a meal with his disciples and he says to one of them, one of you will betray me. And this would be like your Thanksgiving dinner or your Christmas dinner when all your family is at your house. And, and you know one of them is going to betray you. It's, it's a painful thing. I mean, maybe some of you have been betrayed by a spouse or a friend. Or, and you know how painful that is. That is what, what Jesus knows is going to happen. 
And they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And so the disciples say, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. And Jesus replies, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And of course, they all would have dipped because it was a shared dip and they're all dipping bread. So again, Jesus is saying it's one of the twelve. Now, we know who it is. It's Judas. Uh, but again, it's someone close to Jesus. It's someone who has been with them for uh, about three years, witnessing the miracles of Jesus, wit- witnessing the teaching of Jesus. And yet, Judas still goes and betrays, betrays him. And then he says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. That is the prophecies in the Old Testament. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And that was a common phrase, which you find in lots of ancient literal uh, liter- uh, uh, writings, which just meant, I mean, if someone did something really, really bad in that culture, you'd just say, it would be better if that person wasn't born. It's kind of like what we say today when something does really something bad, we say, I'm going to kill him, right? We don't really mean it. It's just... That what that person did is really, really bad. And what Judas is about to do is really, really bad. To betray the Son of God. I mean, Jesus is God's rescue plan to rescue this world from sin, Satan, and death. And Judas is going to betray him. Uh, the very one who came to love Judas and to, and to bless Judas and to draw Judas to, to himself is going to uh, betray Jesus. Now, Hebrews says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. I mean, if we turn our back on Jesus, we're just left in our, in our sin. I mean, Jesus is God's redemption plan. He is the one who came to wash away our sin and to make us right with God and to bring us into the kingdom. And if we turn our back on Jesus... We miss out on all that, and, and we're left in our sin. I mean, it's why Jesus said, no one else can come to the Father except through me. And sometimes people kind of get mad at that. I mean, how could Jesus say he was the only way to God, the only way to heaven? Well, the reality is, there's no one else coming for you. Uh, Jesus is the rescue plan. And to turn you back on Jesus is to turn you back on on. on a connection with God and with the Father and, and with the kingdom. And if you were hanging off a cliff and one guy came and rescued you, you'd be thankful. You wouldn't say, how dare you be the only one to come and rescue me? I mean, you'd be, be thankful. And the reality is, there is no other Savior coming for us. I mean, the only way we can be free from sin, Satan, and death and eternal separation from God is Jesus. And this is what Jesus came and proclaimed so very clearly that I am the rescue plan. I am the way. And here Judas turns his back on the very one who could save him. Turned his back on the rescue plan. That's why we need to be running towards Jesus. Never running away from Jesus. I mean, even if you find your life messy and, and you're just wondering if God even likes you or not. I mean, you, you run towards him because in him is life. Away from him is death. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus said, You have said so. In other words, yeah, you, you know it's you, and, and I know that it's you. I mean, perhaps Judas was hoping that Jesus didn't really know, but he knows. And maybe some of you, I mean, just have things going on in your life that you're just really hoping that God doesn't know about. Uh, he knows. 
every detail of our life, every mistake, every good thing we do. And you know what? And he still loves you. And he's still calling you, saying, come, come to me. I mean, it's silly that we, we, like Adam and Eve, you know, when they sin, they try to hide from God. And whenever we start maybe turning from God, we try to hide ourselves. It's like we always run towards him. That's where grace, that's where mercy, that's where uh, power is found, is running towards him. But it's no uh, accident that Judas used the word rabbi. Because you remember just a few verses earlier, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And then it says the disciples were very sad and began to say to him, one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And so all the disciples, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And then it comes to Judas, and he says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. The common title that the disciples use throughout the Gospels is Lord. But we never see Judas once using the term Lord. Here he uses the lesser term rabbi, which just means, means teacher. This is what those outside, you know, I know the people often called Jesus rabbi, but those who knew it called him Lord. And, and it just seems that Judas could not bring himself to a place where he would call Judas, uh, Jesus Lord. And, and we see the same thing too. I mean, a lot of people have different ideas about who Jesus is. You know, he's a great teacher, he was a, he's a rabbi, he was a really good guy, and they liked some of his teachings, and, and, uh, and, but some people just can't call him, him Lord. But the reality is, the only appropriate title for Jesus is Lord. And this even goes back to the old uh, C.S. Lewis argument that, that Jesus, you know, had to be Lord or a liar or a lunatic. And that's your, your only options, because, I mean, Jesus said things like, no one else can come to the Father except through me. That I'm the only way to God. Jesus said that. Jesus said, I'm the way into the kingdom. I'm the path to forgiveness. Jesus said uh, many times and in numerous ways that he himself was God. Now, either what he said was true, or he's crazy, or he's lying. Uh, and, and so we can't just keep him in the category of a rabbi or keep him in a category of a good teacher. Else you've got to start throwing out some of his statements. Well, maybe he didn't really say that. I mean, he said those things. And obviously he wasn't a liar because, I mean, he proved through his death and resurrection that what he said was true. Obviously he wasn't crazy because he, he did all these miracles and were only left with the option that Jesus really is who he said he was. That he is Lord, which is such good news. It means we can absolutely be forgiven. That there is no sin or darkness in your life that is too big that you have to hold on to. Because Jesus is Lord and because he died and rose again, you can be forgiven. And it means you can have absolute access to God. It means you can be part of the kingdom. It means you can become a child of God. I mean, this is why it's called the good news. This is God's rescue plan for me and you. And so we need to keep Jesus as he is, and that is Lord. And Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And even when it comes to becoming a child of God, this idea of, of seeing him as Lord is so important. That's not just enough to see Jesus as, you know, a great guy or some you know, great teacher or, you know, some, you know, rabbi amongst all the other rabbis. That, that being a Christian is acknowledging that Jesus he is the king, and he is Lord, and he loves me, and he died and rose again, and there's no one greater than Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower, a follower of Jesus. And so while they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so during this meal, Jesus takes bread, and, and he breaks it and gives thanks and says, This is my body. And then he takes a glass of wine and says, this is the blood of my covenant. Uh, I mean, what was he thinking? What was he saying? I mean, obviously he didn't quite mean this literally because the disciples would have freaked out because it was absolutely totally forbidden for people in that day to eat, you know, human flesh and drink human blood. And so what is he talking about? I mean, maybe when we talk about communion, well, this is the body of Christ and, and the cup of Christ or the blood of Christ. Like, is this real blood we're drinking? In fact, <laughs> a long time ago when I first started, remember leading communion and this grandma came up to me afterwards and said i brought my little granddaughter to church and she was like are we gonna really drink blood i mean what is jesus saying here well there are uh, lots of different views within the church uh one view is called here's a big word for you transubstantiation uh roman catholics hold to this and they hold this very literally that this actually is jesus body and this literally is his blood and so when the priest consecrates uh, the bread and the wine that it actually turns into his literal, so you're drinking Jesus' blood and you're eating Jesus' body. Even though it tastes like bread and wine, they say, well, it actually is Jesus' body and is Jesus' blood. Uh, after the Reformation, between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics, uh, a few other views came out, like consubstantiation. Lutherans and some Anglicans and East Eastern Orthodox would hold this uh, somewhat as well. And they take it somewhat literally. That is, the, the bread is still bread, and, and, and the, the wine is still wine, but the use in, with, and through is Christ's literal body and his literal blood, like a sponge, they would say. The sponge is still a sponge, but it's when you, you're soaked with this water, and the water is not the sponge, and the sponge is not the water. So, too, when you take the cup and when you take the bread, Jesus' physical body and blood is, is intergrained in there somehow, in, with, and under and then there's uh, what's called the spiritual presence, and they take this to be spiritually literal. literal. Presbyterians, Reformed, lots of non-denominational churches hold this, and that is that this is spiritually literal, that when you come to this table, that there is a special power of God here, that the presence of God is at this table in a special way, that his, that his body and his shed blood is not there literally, but in a spiritual sense, that there is something very special about this meal that's different than any other meal. And then the other view, which uh, some Baptists would hold to, is called the memorial view. And they say this is not literal, that this is simply a memorial. That this is just about, we come to remember Jesus, and we come to remember his broken body, and we remember his shed blood. But it's not really any more than that. There's no special power here, or special grace. It's just, you're just coming to remember. So it's kind of like any other meal, but you're remembering Jesus. And so there's all these views within Christianity. Anyway, well, which one should we hold to? Well... Uh, I mean, pretty much all Protestants reject transubstantiation for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, that he was not being literal because his body was there. I mean, he didn't chop off a finger and say, you know, we do this in the bread. And he didn't, like, dump his blood into the cup. I mean, it's pretty clear he was being not l literal. I mean, Jesus also said, I am the door. And he said, I'm the vine. But we don't see Jesus as a piece of wood and a stick, you know. Uh, it's pretty clear he was not being literal. And also there are some big theological problems with this and also kind of hint at problems with consubstantiation. And that is Jesus, 
Do you remember the term that the hypostatic union? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Jesus, as a fully human person, his physical body, I mean, when he's alive, couldn't be in more uh, places at once. And so if all these churches are celebrating communion all over the world, it would mean his physical body would have to be divided up and, and to be all places in the world, and that just, that just can't be. I mean, it says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is in his humanness. And so it kind of uh, it, it destroys the theological concept of the hypostatic union. And so we're kind of left with spiritual presence and the memorial view, and there's probably people who wrote to both of those here. And, uh, and we don't really debate over that, though I'm more of the spiritual presence. I really do think there, there's something special about this meal. That, 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 and it seems that 1 Corinthians talks about that. That if you come to this table and you don't examine yourself, that there, there can be this kind of weird judgment. And somehow this meal kind of has a higher priority, a higher level. There's something very special about it. And, and I believe there is a special power that we meet with God when we come to this, to this table. Jesus talking about the bread. And here we just see, again, the idea that he's not being totally literal. He says, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And he says, I am the bread of life. He didn't mean that I'm actually a loaf of bread, you know. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. And he's talking about his teaching and his life and his presence. I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then he goes on and he says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he's, and he's talking about just feasting on who Jesus is and his presence and, and taking as much as you can of him in you. And I kind of like the idea of a sandwich, if it makes sense for me. And if you're super hungry, uh, it doesn't do any good to look at a sandwich. It just makes you more hungry, right? It doesn't do any good to, like, pet the sandwich. It just, again, makes you more hungry. I mean, to look what all is in there. Or to take a picture of it and say, wow, that's really great. Or to talk about a sandwich doesn't help. And if you're hungry and you want that sandwich to nourish you, you got to eat it. And this is the same with life in Jesus. If you want the power of God to be at work in your life, if you want to experience his forgiveness and the, what it is like to be a child of God and, and the fruit of the Spirit pouring out of your life, I mean, you got to, in a sense, eat Jesus, not like gobble on his physical flesh and blood, but just, but just take him and say, Jesus, I want all of you. I, I surrender to you. Would you come into my life and fill every orifice and spot and thought and just come in? I mean, this is what it means to live for Jesus. I mean, if you want to experience Jesus, you got to feed on Jesus and nourish yourself with him and, and, and not spend long during the day where you're not talking to him or thinking of Jesus or just saying, Jesus, I love you, or I need your strength, or would you be with me? That's just to be walking with Jesus, and that's what he's talking about. And too often it's like this. The old Wilbur Reese said this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. 
Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk, a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migraine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And, and to us, that's what this, a lot of people are like. Rabbi, uh, good teacher, you know. Uh, God, it's, you know, like this idea of heaven, the ticket to heaven, but I don't really want to live for you. Or That's not what it means to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus is, I want all of you. I don't I want to live for you because I know you are Lord. And, and the best place for me to be, it's not always the safest seat, but the best place for me to be is in your presence, just living for you. And Jesus said, I've come to set you free. I've come to give you life and life to the fullness. And that's only found in your walk of faith with Jesus. So he talks here about that the blood of the covenant and the forgiveness of sins. And that's what happens when we come here. That we do remember his broken body and we remember the covenant that he, he sealed by his blood. Let me keep moving here. We're almost done. And he says this in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So it's probably after the fourth, fourth cup of wine, he says... I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine, which is a fancy way, which Baptists still use sometimes to mean wine, right? It just means wine, uh, until the Father's kingdom. And some people say that Jesus never again drank wine, and he'll never drink wine again until the, the big supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is actually kind of false, because if you read your Bible, he drank wine within 24 hours. I mean, on the cross, it says, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. It says a jar of wine vinegar, which is just bad wine was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stick of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips, and when he had received the drink, I just drank wine. He said, it is finished. He also spends 40 days with the disciples after his resurrection, and Peter says, it's us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and wine was such a common staple that it's kind of unthinkable that Jesus goes 40 days without drinking wine as he ate with everybody, because that's what they, they drank back then, and so what does he mean when he says, I'm not going to drink wine until the Father's kingdom? And, and, and most people think what he's saying is that this kind of special meal he had with his disciples, uh, that kind of special event is not going to happen again until the marriage supper of the, of the Lamb. And there is a meal that we are looking forward to. And the Bible talks about it in Revelations 19. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Again, there's the imagery of the Lamb. And many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at a feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so I mean, when God wraps things up, there's going to be this huge banquet. And everyone who, who follows Jesus is going to be there. And there's going to be this special time that once again, Jesus is going to be with his disciples. And the book of Isaiah says there's going to be the aged wine and a big feast at this wedding banquet that is to come. And then lastly, I said, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as a part of the Passover meal was singing. Uh, Psalms 113 to 118, they would have sang through as part of the Passover meal and also one, uh, Psalm 136. So let me just finish this one por portion of this, what they would have sung. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm 
of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. And there's a, there's a prophecy, uh, you know, singing of the resurrection. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And that is where security is found. That is where joy is found. It is in Jesus, when we are nourishing on him in every aspect of our life. And that's the way we're going to finish uh, our service today, with communion, with uh, the very thing that Jesus instituted on that last day when churches all over the world since the very first Last Supper have been celebrating that meal and remembering our forgiveness and our grace and our redemption by coming to this, this table. And so we're going to have a, a song playing on the video and, uh, and you're welcome just to come up and to take the cup and to take the bread and to remember Jesus, to experience Jesus in, in, in a powerful way, however God wants to meet you. And then we'll, uh, and then we'll close off and then we'll get ready for our, our potluck. And so uh, let's kneel and pray. Father, I thank you uh, for sending your son Jesus. For in him we have freedom. We have life to the fullness. We have resurrection power at work in us. We're a part of the kingdom. Uh, we are your children, and we're dearly loved. God, we thank you for what you're doing in us. We thank you for, for bringing people around us who love us and, and, and people, God, who are following you and people who are still trying to figure out maybe who you are. God, we are just thankful that we can be here today. And God, as we come to this table, we pray that you would meet us here in power. Uh, God, that we would sense your presence. God, we would be renewed in the sense that, that we are your children. God, that we would be renewed in the sense of the power that you have given us. And God, if there are people here who, who haven't really ever made that step of calling you Lord, uh, God, we invite them here as their first step of saying, I really do want to live for you as Lord. God, uh, God, we welcome them to this table as well. And so God, would you meet us here with healing, with grace, with forgiveness, with mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name.